this morning, we are going to return to our study of the one another's. And it's going to be a slightly tricky one. And we're going to be talking about being in submission to one another. And when I had scheduled this topic at the beginning of the year, I did not anticipate just uh, all the challenges that we would have when it comes to submission uh, or even just thinking about submission. Uh, But in God's providence, that's where we find ourselves this morning. Um, And in order to study submission, we're going to do so not directly, but in a very roundabout fashion. And I know for some of you, that's kind of frustrating because you'd rather me get to the point but have patience with me. There's a reason to the madness uh, that we're, that, um, in, in terms of how we're going to look at uh, be in, being in submission to one another. So if you will, turn with me to your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Teaching on the subject of authority in the church can be a rather touchy subject. It's because some of you, you've had a really great experience with the majority of authority figures in your life, and you are joyfully willing to submit to whatever they say. Others of you have had some not-so-great experiences when it comes to authority, and uh, perhaps you were raised to rebel against authority, right? To stick it to the man. And of course, there are those of us who kind of fall smack dab in the middle, where we fluctuate from willing submission to authority to a desire to ignore or throw off the authority that has been placed in our lives. Now, the irony is not lost on me that I am preaching a message on submission to you as an authority figure of sorts, but this is not a message in which I am trying to convince you all that I am right and you are wrong, and you must listen to me in everything that I say, Uh, or for that matter, the authority of this church, uh, of the church leadership. And you know, the tension that we have even within our own church when it comes to the idea of submitting to our governmental authorities and what they've mandated. That's the irony that's there is not lost on me either. Now, my goal this morning is not to address that problem. Okay, my goal is not to address that problem. You might call me a coward, so be it. But my goal is not to address that problem. We want to talk about what the scriptures have to say. I want for us to see what God's word definitively has said for us about the subject of submission in our lives. And so, so that we can have a biblical understanding of what God calls us to do, and then try and apply that to our lives as we see the principles flesh out. Now, we're going to accomplish this goal of understanding submission again in a roundabout fashion this morning. So I do ask for your patience as I build the case for Uh, how we ought to think about our submission to one another. Now, we're going to do that this morning through two commands, two commands that help Christians properly understand our submission to authority. Two commands that help Christians properly understand our submission to authority. The first command that we see, sorry, it's a little, uh, it's in paragraph form. I forgot to fix that. But um, it's uh, the first command that we're going to see is be careful how you walk. And the second command that we're going to see is be filled with the Spirit. It's just straight from the text. Okay, so that's going to be our outline this morning. So the first command that we're going to look at is be careful how you walk. Be careful how you walk. Now, as many of you will remember, the latter chapters of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, are typically understood as practical chapters. Right? Instructions on, Christ, on how Christians ought to live in light of the salvation that we've received from God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Here, in chapter 5, Paul continues to build the case that since we've been saved from our sins, we should be imitators of God and no longer live according to our sins. And he continues to make his case here as he warns believers to be careful how they walk. And Paul picks up a metaphor that he's been using throughout Ephesians, the metaphor of walking, to talk about our lifestyle. And so he's now elaborating on that command. And uh, we're going to look at, we're going to observe two nuances to this command of uh, walking, uh, being careful how we walk. And the first nuance of that command that we see is not as unwise, but as wise. Or not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So that command that we have, be careful how you walk. It's better translated, look carefully how you walk. You all look carefully how you walk. You see, Christians are not to go around or go about our lives ignorant to what God has revealed in his word. And we're not supposed to walk around ignorantly, just kind of like, oh, I'm just unaware of what God has, has said. And Paul writes earlier that since Christians are no longer darkness, they are to walk as children of the light because they are light in the Lord. So we are to carefully observe our lives, to make sure that we're living like the people God saved us to be. We are to be holy as he is holy. And since we are to carefully pay attention to how we live our lives to make sure that we do not dishonor God in how we live, we need to learn how to live in a wise manner. We want to make sure that we truly are being wise in the way that we're going about our lives. And this connection between godly living and wise living is actually something that we see in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. And um, it's, it shows us that those who are wise are those who obey God's commandments. And that brings us to an important observation and conclusion. We are at our wisest when we obey God. We are at our wisest when we obey God. In Proverbs 9, 9 through 10, Solomon writes this, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So Solomon even recognizes here that The instruction that we want to live by, the wisdom that we want to live by, it begins with the fear of the Lord. And those who are wise are those who will pay attention to what God has said. Now, we all know that Solomon was the wisest man who lived on this earth besides Jesus Christ. And his wisdom was so profound that 1 Kings 10.24 tells us that All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had placed in Solomon's heart. And how would you like that? To be so wise that everyone in the world is coming to you for your wisdom. In a sense, I guess that's what some social media influencers are trying to emulate right now, right? As they build their following. Listen to my wisdom. Listen to my experience. I know things. It's like, well, I know things too, so maybe you're not so smart, right? But anyways... What we see here is that God's wisdom is a thing that makes us wise. Right? And when we follow that, that's when we are at, uh, at our, our wisest. Right? When we're obeying him, that's when we're at our wisest. Now, we know from Ecclesiastes and other accounts in the scriptures that Solomon, though he was the wisest man who ever lived, was also one of the most unwise men who ever lived. Right? Because he knew what God said. He knew what God commanded, but he chose also to pursue things that he knew were foolish. And one of the chief examples of that foolishness was when he married those 1,000 women. He had 1,000 wives. And if that wasn't 
a problem enough, right? These wives that he had were unbelievers. And we are told in the scriptures that these wives, they led his heart away from Yahweh. They led his heart away from Yahweh. You see, the wisest man on earth was still capable of immense folly because he lived according to his own desires. Or he pursued after his own desires. He didn't live as a wise person, though he had wisdom. He lived as an unwise person. He lived as a fool. In a church culture like ours, it's easy for us to express the desire to live wisely or to make decisions that are wise. Right? We talk about that. We say, like, oh, well, I don't know if that's a wise decision for me. I want to do what's wise before God. But the key question that we all have to ask ourselves is, what is the source of our wisdom? Now, what is the source of our wisdom? You say that you want to be wise, but what is the source of your wisdom? Do we know what true wisdom is or where it is found? Or is the wisdom that we live by simply a combination of what people say around us, what the world values, and what we desire? Is our wisdom just the things that we like hearing from other people, the values of the world, and our desire all mixed up into one ball, so-called wisdom, and that's how we choose to live our lives? Yeah, as we saw in the First Kings passage, the wisdom that Solomon had, it wasn't his own. Right? It was a wisdom that God gave him. And because of the saving faith that has been given to all of us who believe in Jesus Christ and have left our sins behind, we have the mind of Christ. We've been given wisdom from above. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that God has granted us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. And so those who are wise will strive to live according to that knowledge of God that we've been given. And we see that primarily in God's word. The knowledge that we've been given of God is from God's word. If you just hear it from someone else, you know, that's okay. But the purest source of knowledge of God is from God's word. God's word should be the place where we get our wisdom. And on a secondary basis, people who know God's word well are the ones that we should seek out to maybe wrestle through principles, issues of principles, and and gray area matters. matters. But first and foremost, we want to go to the scriptures. And we we do all this because we want to be wise. But why is Paul making such a big deal about being wise? Paying careful attention to our lives so that we can be wise. Well, verse 16 helps us here. He says this, making the most of your time because the days are evil. You see, part of how we live as wise people rather than as unwise people is not only <clears throat> excuse me, linked to the true wisdom that is found in the Lord, right, but it's also linked to how that fear of the Lord drives us to live our lives in response. You can fear the Lord, Right? You can so-called fear the Lord. You can so-called res- respect God. But if that respect for God, if that fear for God does not lead to action in your life, then you actually do not have a fear for the Lord. You actually don't have reverence for him. A true understanding of God motivates us, pushes us, causes us to want to live in response to the truth that we have about him. And so when we understand this verse, verse 16, that our time is limited, we want to make sure that we don't waste it. We want to try hard not to waste it. When I was in seminary and I had big deadlines due all on the same day, there was definitely at least one, if not two times, where I was maybe a little extra crazy when it came to trying to save time. My parents are here. 
And this is probably going to scare them, but it's, we're going there, okay? And so basically what happened would, would be I would go and I would try and grab all my meals all at, one, all at once, all at one time, right? And so um, I would grab my lunch and my dinner all at the same time so I don't have to go back out to go get more food, right? So I just had my little stash of food. And I would also make sure that the place that I chose to go get food had coffee, they served coffee, or it was at least close to coffee, Right? And so I had my food, I had my caffeine, ready to go. And then, because I worked there and I had a key, I don't really know how I never got caught by security, to be honest. But um, I, I just stayed at school the whole, whole night. I just stayed at school the whole night. I didn't go home, I slept in the lounge, and I just did my work. What, but why did I do this? Why was I so crazy in terms of how I, I went about living my life? Well, you know, why didn't I leave school? It was because I was trying to make the most of the time. Right? I didn't have time to go wash dishes. Let's just throw the trash away. I didn't have time to go on a commute. I needed to work. Right? And so I made sure that I protected that work time as much as possible so that I could meet my deadlines. Right? I was trying to make the most of my time. Granted, it was extreme and kind of crazy, but I was trying to do my best to make the most of my time. And in a very similar way, you don't have to be as crazy as I was. But in a very similar way, when we think about the time that we have been given by God, or the time that we've been, steward, that we've been given as a stewardship by God, right, what we are trying to do is to make it our aim to make the most of our time here so that we can serve him and we can advance the kingdom the best that we can during the season of life that he has given us. Many of you, you know that we kind of move in and out of seasons in our life. And God is not asking you to continue to, be, uh, to, be, to continue to serve him in the same capacity that you used to serve him in a former season. He just asks for you to be faithful. He's not asking for you to continue to serve him as if you were 21 and you had all the energy and time in the world. And when you move throughout the different seasons, God's just asking you to be faithful where you're at, with what you have, and with the time that you have. When we see those words, the days are evil, we're reminded of the fact that we live in a time where Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, has been granted the ability to wield his influence among the sons of disobedience. That is the time that we live in now. Right? This is Ephesians 2. And since the time of disobedience is here and now, Christians, we don't have the luxury of just waiting around for Christ to return. We actually have a job to do, right? we, and we know this. Right? God saved us for a purpose. He didn't save us just so that we can, we can hide out in our apocalypse bunkers and just wait for Jesus Christ to come back. If that's the case, I don't know why we're all up here anyway. Right? But those of us who want to live wisely and we want to please our Lord, we must then strive to make the most of the time that we've been given because we know that our opportunity to make an impact for the gospel in our community, whether it's our church or even the community at large, is very limited. And so we don't want to waste it away by making the aim of our life entertainment. Or we live in a culture where we are entertaining ourselves to death. We don't want to be, we don't want our end goal to be, I just want entertainment. We don't want to be in a spot where that is our functional God. God has us here for a purpose. And it's not for us to live for ourselves, but it's for us to live for him. And that leads to a second nuance of the command that we observe when it comes to how we are to carefully look at our lives. And that is that we must understand the will of the Lord. We must understand the will of the Lord. Verse 17. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, when it comes to the will of the Lord, right, many of you are probably asking, yeah, I, I want to know what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of God? Right, I want to know what God's will is for my life. But oftentimes, when we talk about knowing what the will of God is for our lives, we're thinking more in terms of perhaps the things that God has not revealed 
to us. We want to know things like, what job should I pursue? Where should I live? Should I stay here in San Francisco? The taxes are high. Everything's high. Should I move to Texas right? um, or uh, uh, Idaho? Um, or where should I go? Should I get married or not? Or to whom should I get married? Right? These are some of the questions that we want to know regarding God's will. We want to know about the aspect of the will of God that is actually not revealed to us. And that's okay. That's normal. But when Paul says here that we are to understand what the will of God is, what he wants us to focus on are not the areas of God's will that we do not know and that God has temporarily hidden from us. He's talking about the aspects of God's will that we are aware of, that we do know. You see, brothers and sisters, we do know what the will of God is for our lives. We know that his desire for us, right, his will for us, is our sanctification, right? 1 Thessalonians 4. We know that his desire for us, his will for us, is that we all grow up in all aspects of our life in respect to Jesus Christ. We know that God wants us to make disciples of all nations. And while there are certain, certainly aspects of God's will that we do not know yet, God is not asking us to figure out what he has temporarily hidden. If we continue to pursue after the things that we don't know, and that's all we spend our lives doing, is just trying to figure out these unknown aspects of God's will, and we're paralyzed from moving on in our lives because we can't figure out what God wants us to do, We're not acting as wise. In fact, we're acting as fools. We're acting foolish. And we're wasting all of our time, all of our energy, trying to figure out these little nuances that will reveal themselves in time, all the while forgetting to do the things that God has told us to do. We are not to act like those who have no understanding. We are not to live in open rebellion or defiance to what we know God wants us to do. You see, having been saved from our sins, our desire should be to live as if we've been saved because we have been. Our desire should be to obey the clear commands that are in Scripture, that express God's will for every believer. Not just because we have to, but because we love God and we want to. No believer is exempt from obeying God's expressed will. We are all called, every single one of us, to submit ourselves to the authority of our gracious King. And as we learn to submit to Him in how in every aspect of our life, and as we begin to carefully walk in our lives, we begin to see how submission works in God's plan. It's not just between us and Him, right? but it will play out in our uh, other relationships with other people as well, especially the, the, uh, especially the relationships of authority that have been given to us by God. Right? The scriptures clearly say that the authorities in our lives have been given to us by God. Right? And so our understanding of our submission to him will influence the way that we think about our submission to other people. And that leads us to the second command that helps Christians properly understand our submission to authority. And that is the command to be filled with the Spirit. Okay? The command to be filled with the Spirit. Now first, we see... Well, even before we get to the command of be filled with spirit, we see uh, another command, do not get drunk with wine. Do not get drunk with wine. The first half of verse 18 says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. So, in ancient days, safe drinking water was often not readily available. And even if it was available, it was available in very limited quantities. And that was true of both Old and New Testament times. And though wine was a common drink at that time, the more common wine, the the everyday drinking wine, if you will, was either non-alcoholic or it was heavily, heavily diluted so that it would be really hard to get drunk if you were drinking that wine. 
Right? So that's not the wine that we're talking about here. Um, that's not why Paul gives this command. Um, but there were wines out there, though, that were much more potent. Right? Wines that could lead to drunkenness. And it's the drunkenness that is, uh, that is sinful. The behavior of drunkenness that is sinful. Now, this command against drunkenness has consistently been given by God in the Bible throughout both the Old and the New Testament times. Right? So it's not something that, uh, that a bunch of Christians in the 70s decided was no, no good, so no more drinking for anybody. Right? Was, this is, drunkenness was something that God was concerned about for, uh, well, basically, uh, since the Old Testament. Right? And the reason behind this this command, and it's actually something that unbelievers recognize as well, is that when you're intoxicated, you're not yourself. Or when you're drunk, you're not in full control of your faculties. Um, among, among the many negative effects that are there with drunkenness are an impairment of judgment, right? slower response times, uh, and perhaps even uh, decrease cognitive abilities, right? Sometimes uh, you hear people talking about how drunk they got. They don't even remember what happened to them. And so instead of being in full control of your own body, right, you're actually being controlled by something else. You're being controlled by drunkenness, right? by the spirit of wine. Not like it's a god or anything, right? But you're being controlled by this loose action. Right, so you are not supposed to be, you know, if you, if you find a drunk person, I don't want to see any of you going like, be gone from you, spirit of drunkenness, right? That's not what, what God is calling us to do, right? But, but what we see is that drunkenness is a, is a problem because it, we, we lose control of ourselves, right? We give over control to a foreign substance. And by the way, that would probably, that probably, or not probably, that also includes other substances that have the potential to control us as well. I don't care what California says in terms of marijuana is fine. If you do not have the ability to control your own faculties, right? if you don't have the ability to control your own faculties, then this is something that, is also not for you either. This is not something for you either because you're being controlled by something else. Now, Paul specifically calls drunkenness dissipation, or in some of your translations, the word is debauchery. Now, if you look up these two words in the dictionary, you'll see that they're pretty much the same, except for debauchery is usually more associated with uh, the party life, right? having fun, enjoying it, and whatnot. Dissipation is actually the better term here, and this word uh, is the better word because what Paul is getting at here is when you are controlled by drunkenness, it leads to a recklessness, a recklessness that is ultimately self-destructive. You have no control. Right? That's Paul's point, is that you have no control. So dissipation is the better word here because it brings out that idea of you're beyond help, or you are in a sense, a lost cause. You have no control. Instead of, um, instead of being able to make the most of your time, the person who is given over to drunkenness is unable to do so because they're not under control of their lives. Right? They've given themselves over to the worship of alcohol and the side effects of alcohol in order to receive the so-called gifts that their God promises to give them. And that's the problem with drunkenness. Now, I want to be clear. If you like alcohol, Paul is not saying that you cannot have alcohol at all. He's not saying that it's sinful for you to have a drink or two. Uh, he's not saying that you can't have alcohol in your home, and if you do, you have to be like, oh, don't worry, it's just cooking wine. He is saying, though, as one of God's chosen authors of Scripture, that drunkenness is sinful. Right? The act of being drunk is sinful. And that is why, and, and that is what people who choose to drink must be mindful of when they drink. However, what is better than drinking and getting drunk with wine or any other alcoholic beverage for that matter is being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is way more, is way better than. Uh, being filled with drunkenness. And 
Now we ask the question, how are we filled with the Spirit? Well, the rest of our passage will help us understand. Okay, so how we are filled with the Spirit will be seen um, in verses eight, the rest of verse 18 and following. So the um, second half of verse 18 says this, but be filled with the Spirit. So this is in contrast to the command not to be drunk. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You know, this has been a point of wrestling for some Christians because some of them believe that being filled with the Spirit means that you speak in tongues, right? Or uh, that you have so much faith that you can imitate God and you can speak things into existence. Or that uh, if you pray hard enough, whatever you want will happen. Even healing from sicknesses and and whatnot. So what does it mean for us to be filled with the Spirit? Well, in contrast to being filled and controlled with wine, being filled with the Spirit involves a desire to love God and allow for that love for Him to be the thing which drives us to seek to obey Him, to seek to submit to Him in all areas of our lives. Being filled with the Spirit means that we're willing to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. And it's not just in some areas of our lives, but it's in all areas of our lives. Nowhere in the Scriptures does God say that it's okay for us to serve Him in the majority of the areas of our lives, but we get to keep back a portion of our lives for our own selves. Right? Nowhere does God say, hey, because you've been so faithful in loving me and in serving me in all these different areas, please feel free to indulge yourself in the sin of your choice as a reward. Right? God never says that. He never justifies sin. And when it comes to, to sin and its effects of our lives, you know, it's not, our mindset should not be, oh, well, you know what? God actually gives me grace when I sin, so maybe I should sin some more. Right? God, God will understand, so it's fine. Right? Paul challenges that thought in Romans 6 2 when he, when he asked the question, you know, if we've died to sin, how can we still live in it? Instead of being controlled by the lusts of our heart the ruling desires of our hearts. We are to be filled with the Spirit. We are to allow for our love for God to be the thing that controls us, that influences the way that we think about life, our philosophy of life. Right? All of that is, being, is predicated on, it's built upon our love for God instead of our love for ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, Paul writes this, For the love of Christ controls us. Some of your translation says compels us. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. That we are no longer self-centered and self-focused, but we are God-centered and God-focused. Those who are being filled with the Spirit are those who are, allow- who are allowing God to continually fill us up with His Holy Spirit. It's a continual thing that God does. In John 14, Jesus describes the role of the Holy Spirit whom God the Father gives to us at salvation. And He tells us that the Holy Spirit is going to be our helper right, who will teach us and bring to our remembrance all that Christ has said. And you notice that that's something that God does to us. Presently, continually, God is the one who fills us with his Holy Spirit. We can't fill ourselves up with the Holy Spirit. God is the one who does this. We can put ourselves in the way to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but we can't do that ourselves. We can, however, 
We can, however, in our disobedience, ignore God's prompting for our lives. We can actively choose to disobey God. That's what we can do. However, if we choose to submit to the word of God, it's God who enables you and helps you to do what Christ has commanded. Now, one scholar put it this way, Christians are like gloves. Christians are like gloves. Without a hand in a glove, a glove is pretty useless, right? If you have, you know, it's, it's, it's getting to be wintertime, right? And if you take out your winter glove and you say, hey, open the door for me, that glove is just going to flop on the floor and do nothing, right? Because there's nothing inside the glove to make it work. If we are not filled, we do no work. A Christian who tries to do spiritual things or accomplish spiritual goals without surrender to the Lord's clear will in our lives will ultimately produce no work of lasting value. And I specify no work of lasting value because, well, even unbelievers can do good things that look Christian, right? We see it all the time in youth group, right? We have them serving, and it was like, oh, cool, you're serving, Right? But if they're unbelievers, they might look like they're doing the work of ministry, but ultimately they're not. Right? And that's, of course, not to say that we shouldn't let our, our young people serve. But that just goes to, it's just a very common example of how oftentimes we can try to do work for God, right? and it may look like we are worshiping Him and we're following after Him, but in all reality, because we're not spirit-filled, there's no lasting value to anything that we do. So, if we are to be filled with the Spirit, how can we do so according to the Scriptures? Well, Paul provides four different ways that God provides us to be filled with the Spirit. And you're going to see that in uh, the, the next, uh, uh, the next uh, uh, three verses. And uh, just look out for those for those verbs that end with ing. We call them garands or uh, participles. Look out for those words, okay? That's, that's really going to be our, our basis here, okay? So the first way that we can uh, put ourselves in, in the way of being filled by the Spirit is by speaking, speaking. Verse 19, the first half says this, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the first way that we can put ourselves in the way of God's, uh, uh, God's means to grow through the Holy Spirit is by speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, this doesn't mean that you walk around and you're singing lines of hymns to one another, and that's the only way you can talk. Okay? So that's, that's not what we're saying. We can speak normally, okay? but... Think about it this way, right? What is the easiest way we can remember truth and internalize truth? It's through song, right? When we're trying to teach our, our children the alphabet, you don't just present them with a board with the capital letters and the, small, and the lowercase letters and say, okay, here are the letters of the alphabet, memorize them. Right? You might, but it's not, it's not going to work very well. Right? That's why we teach them the alphabet song. Right? If, we want to, if we want to teach our, our children how our body works and how it's all interconnected, right? we don't launch into, a, 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 into an anatomy class or, or a physiology class. Right? We teach them that song. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes, knees, and toes. Right? We teach them songs. Right? There, there are songs about how you can memorize the states of America. Right? We teach through song. And that's especially true here in the church, where we teach our children who God is through song, who, who Christ is and what he's done through song. And we do that actually with one another here during our worship time. Right? And we are very distinct in our singing because we actually have something to sing about. And that's why we emphasize when we were returning back to worship, the need for singing. And not just singing from the worship team, but from the entire congregation. Because we teach each other through our singing. We teach each other through our singing. We help one another understand the truths better in our singing. Our singing has substance and it has meaning more than any of the secular songs that you listen to on the radio. 
what our singing is meant to do is to take the truths that we learn on Sunday and help us carry those truths with us throughout the week. That's why we sing. And so, as you can see, we are taught truth by the Psalms that are found in the Scriptures. We can be taught truth by the hymns of the faith, and we can be taught truth by the spiritual songs that we sing as well. Right? Modern, modern hymns are okay. Modern Christian songs are okay. All that matters is that we are singing solid biblical truth to one another and with one another so that we can teach each other the truth that is found in God's Word and so that we can also remember those truths as well. And this is a bit of a side note, but this is also the reason why San Francisco Bible Church is a little more choosy in our songs. We don't just sing any Christian song put out by any Christian artist. We want to be intentional in the songs that we sing because we want to make sure that the songs that we sing are helpful in teaching us truth and helping us live out those truths. And so anyways, that's just an aside as to why we sing the songs that we do. But next, we move on to the second way that we can be filled by the Spirit, and that is through singing. That is through singing. So we speak the truth through the singing of songs to one another, but we also do so. We also are filled with the spirit by the spirit in singing, right? singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now, this sounds really familiar to speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but there is a key difference. Right? The key difference is those last three words in the verse. Our aim, our target audience is the Lord. And when we sing, we are singing to the Lord. And when we have our corporate singing time, our time together is not a concert. I know the worship team sounds amazing, but this is not a spectator sport, right? Worship is not a spectator sport where you just sit back and you just let, let it happen to you. We are actively engaged in worship. And we're not just trying to do so through our outward appearance, but we are trying to engage our own hearts, our own minds, our own souls in worship to the Lord. And we do so together. Worship is not about us getting our fix of good vibes or our fix of God before we enter into our busy weeks. Worship is about praising God for who he is, for what he has done, and what we know he will do. That's why we worship. That's why we sing songs. Because worship is all about God. It's all about God. It's not about us. It's not about what we receive. It's all about God and the glory that he deserves. It always has been and it always will be. And by the way, you don't have to be an excellent singer in order to participate in this particular aspect of being filled by the Spirit. Because God created all of his people to be those who sing. It's something that we're all going to do in heaven, and we see that in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. And sure, I know some of you who will probably become a better singer only in glory, but we are commanded to sing. We are commanded to sing. So even if you have trouble carrying a tune, even if the people around you are going like this when you're singing, we are commanded to sing. So sing, brothers and sisters, sing. Because we know our great God. We know that he is worthy of all worship. And so we want to sing in response to that. Now, the third element of what it looks like to be filled by the Spirit is seen in the acts of giving thanks. Verse 20 says this, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Because God has graciously saved us from the eternal wrath that we have all earned for ourselves with every single sin that we have committed, Christians should be the most thankful people in the world. We should be the most thankful people in the world because not only do we know that God loves us and that he's always with us and that he will never abandon us, we also know that he is in sovereign control over all things, which means that he can, even if it's painful, use 
the circumstances in our lives to glorify himself. And you know, you know, also additionally, we just know that we can be thankful because God has given us everything that we have. And Psalm 24, 1 reminds us that the earth is Yahweh's as well as all its fullness. Right? Everything that is in the earth is God's. Right? Everything in this earth is God's. Everything that we have in this life has been given to us on loan from God. It's all borrowed. It's all something that's given to us as a stewardship. As a result, none of us should ever have the attitude that we alone have accomplished for ourselves the things that we've worked for. Because God is the one who owns all things. He is the one who gives these things to us. You see, discontent begins with an ungrateful heart that believes that it deserves more than Yahweh has given. Discontent begins with an ungrateful heart that believes that it deserves more than Yahweh has given. It is a demand that Yahweh gives us more than he has already given us. Thankfulness, on the other hand, recognizes that God is the giver of all gifts and that he alone has the right to distribute his gifts to his children at his appointed time, and he has the right to determine to whom he will give these gifts. So rather than focusing in on what you don't have, those who are filled by the Spirit, those who are carefully observing their lives before God should instead be thinking about how thankful we are to God for everything. Try this as a a little heart work assignment. Try coming up with a list of 100 things that you are thankful for. You're probably going to get stuck around 20. But that's okay. Keep working at it. Keep thinking about it. Because once you get stuck and you know you're going to try and get to 100, you got to be thinking about, okay, how else is God working in my life right now? Or how else is God showing me his goodness? And so, you know, as you do that, it would be a very helpful exercise to really help cultivate a heart of thankfulness um, yeah, in your life. Now, finally, we get to that last aspect of what it means to be filled by the Spirit. And, and, and um, that is through our submission to one another. Right? We've worked hard to get here. Now, I'm going to drop a bomb on you, and then we're going to leave. Right? But it's going to be submission. Right? Submission. How do we understand submission? Right? We worked hard to get here. Let's look at it. Verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's probably better for us to uh, translate this as and being subject to one another because the verb here is a participle. Um, but uh, the easier way to express this in English, I believe the ESV has it this way, is submitting to one another. Right? But the reason why I want to kind of keep it as and be submitting to one another is because um, this is something that uh, we... It's not, a, it's not exactly a command, but it's something that we are to, to um, adopt as a posture for ourselves. Okay. Now, that word, being subject, was originally a military term, which meant to arrange or rank under authority. And that means that spirit-filled Christians will be people who are willing to honor the authority that God has placed in their lives, that we're willing to follow the lead of those that God has placed in our lives as authority figures. Right? So if we are carefully looking after our lives, Right, making sure that we are living in God's wisdom. We are not to despise the authority figures that God has placed in our lives. If we are seeking to be filled by the Holy Spirit, that means that we are not acting in conscious, active rebellion against the authority figures that God has placed in our lives. Because the submission that we are to give to the authority figures that God himself has placed over us in our lives is supposed to be given to them in the fear of Christ. We are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, the fear of Christ 
that we are to have is not one of terror, but one of reverence. Reverence and respect that leads us to listen and obey what, what God has revealed to us in his word with our whole heart. And the reason why I emphasize that aspect of uh, not just reverence is because there are people out there who will say to you that Jesus was a good man. Right? They'll say to you, oh, I, I believe that Jesus was a good man. I believe that he was a prophet. But their belief in Jesus as a good man or as a prophet doesn't lead them to worship him. It doesn't lead them to obey him. Now, since God has sovereignly placed authority figures in our lives, we are responsible for honoring these authority figures in our lives. Now, granted, there are exceptions to how how far our submission goes. We know of biblical cases where we don't submit. Biblically, we see Daniel refuse to listen to Darius' law, not to pray to anyone except for Darius. Peter and John were commanded by the Sanhedrin to no longer preach Jesus Christ to the people. But they said, no, we're going to obey God rather than men. Right? So in these particular cases, these are just some examples, right? taking a stand for what is right before God was more important than listening to their authorities. But wanting to please the Lord first and foremost, was the key factor in the choice not to listen to the authorities. However, we also see in Scripture that uh, even in the dis- disagreements, right, that there was uh, a respect that the, God's people needed to have towards their leaders still. Now, I know, I understand that some of you might be wondering where I'm going with this in terms of application. And you're probably wondering, am I going to speak up for or against government mandates? I have absolutely no interest in being unnecessarily political as we're looking at God's word. Because what we are talking about this morning is how we submit to one another within the body of Christ. This is the one another that we see. So that's why I'm not going to get into that. If you want to think about that some more, I would invite you to study what the scriptures have to say, to come to your own conclusions as you study the scriptures faithfully, engage in good dialogue with fellow brothers and sisters, and try and come to your own conviction that will allow for you to uh, be okay in your conscience when it comes to some of these government things. But I don't want to emphasize that. I want to instead, I want for us to instead look at the examples of the authority figures that we are to look at that Paul has given us. We don't need to look any further than verses 22 all the way to Ephesians 6, 9 to understand how submission ought to work out in the lives of the body of Christ. And obviously, we don't have time to go into these examples in depth, but what you're going to notice as you see here, as you just kind of glance through your Bibles and and look at the relationships that are here, we're going to see that there's authority structure in terms of a, a, a husband's relationship with his wife, a father's relationship with his children, and a master's relationship with his slave. And you'll notice, as you eventually study these, these verses, right, that God does not grant the one in authority free reign to do as they will. They are, they are not allowed to basically have authoritarian rule in the lives of the people that they are supposed to be authority figures for. Because you can even see right, that, husband, that, that wives are called to, in the very same word, uh, verb here, right, be subject to their husbands, but husbands are also called to love their wives. And there's a, and there's a lot of weight on there too. Right? If you even look at some of, the, some, of, some of these relationships, the majority of the instruction that Paul provides is for the one who has been given authority by God. And it's a warning to those who have been given authority by God to exercise that authority carefully, or to exercise that authority carefully. If we are walking wisely, if we are being filled by the Spirit, those who have been given um, positions of authority in life are to model our leadership after Christ's leadership. Our leadership is meant to be exercised 
in love, knowing that God, that knowing that, that God will hold us to account for how we treat other people. God will, well, we will answer to God for how we have led other people. And so for those of you who are leaders in various spheres of your life, whether you are a leader in your workplace, leader in the church, or, or parents, or leaders in your school, right, know that you are going to be held accountable to God for how you exercise that leadership. And if you know that we're going to be held accountable to God for how we exercise that leadership, we should not be power-hungry and greedy, like, yes, I finally got the position that I wanted. Right? Now, that should terrify you. That should terrify you and humble you that you are held accountable before God for how you lead. Right? So we, we, should, we ought to be praying that God would give us wisdom, humility, and the ability to lead in a, in a Christ-glorifying manner. Now, for those of us who find ourselves in various spheres of our lives in a position where we must submit, we don't submit just when we feel like it or when we understand fully what the person who is leading us is trying to do. Because when you look at the relationships that are given here, they're just called to submit to their authority figures that God has given. What we're trying to do in our small horizontal relationships, our relationships with other people, is demonstrate a small picture of what it means to submit to God. We humbly submit ourselves to those that God has placed in our lives as authority figures, striving to display in our submission to men, our submission to Christ, just as he himself submitted himself to God the Father, though he was God very God. Yes, there will be times when you may need to respectfully disagree with your leaders. And yes, there are times when that respectful disagreement with your leaders will lead to consequences. Right? It won't always be fun. You might have your life completely ch- changed and challenged because of that. But if you are to respectfully disagree the way in which you should do so should always reflect Christ to the other person. Now, for all of us, as we're studying these examples that Paul gives on how leaders are to act towards those that they lead, we should pay attention to the ways that we can please God in our leadership. We should remember that we are held, that every single one of us are held accountable to how we reflect Christ in our leadership. And we should also, all of us, study the examples of those who must submit, right? Because we all have people that we submit to. And we want to make sure that we apply these principles in uh, these situations in our lives to the authorities, the God-given authorities that we've been given, right? We want to make sure that we please Him in the way that we handle any of these disagreements, We don't, want to make, we, we don't want to, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, suffer for doing what is wrong. And there's no glory to you if you suffer for doing what is wrong. There is no glory for you, or, or no, um, you know, there is no benefit for you to say, oh, I've been enduring such trials, when the very reason for your trials is for your own sin. Okay, we want to be careful about that. Our submission is a very complicated thing. And we've just scratched the surface of it, but I wanted to at least help us understand initially this morning kind of how we get there, right? how, how we get there. So in conclusion, this morning we learned about the one another of being in submission to one another. And we've done so in a bit of a roundabout way. Uh, we looked at how we are commanded to be careful how we walk, be careful how we live, right? and how we are to be filled with the Spirit. And these commands help us understand submission better because now we know at least... That our submission is not an antiquated word that we have to be ashamed about. It's not something that we have to apologize for, but it is, a, it is an action that God has designed for his church to demonstrate to one another in the authorities that he has placed over us, right? and also to, some, to the outside world as well. 
God puts authority figures in our lives so that we can, in a sense, it's like training wheels, right? So that we can learn how to obey these authority figures in our lives so that we can have a better picture of what it means to obey Him. Okay, now submission is one of the ways that we demonstrate that we are filled by the Spirit because it reflects our own willingness to follow Christ's example to humble Himself before God. So being filled with the Spirit should be the thing that influences the way that we think about submission, right? the, the, even our willingness to submit. Right? God calls all of us, right? all of us to submit to him. And that's not just seen in how we relate with him, but also in how we relate with other people as well. So let us seek to follow the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, though he was God, very God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for your word and for how you help us understand submission, and it's not something that um, it's not something that leaders get to just uh, just demand that uh, those who are under their leadership give them. But it is actually something that you have commanded us to give to the authority figures in our lives. We pray for uh, for those of us who are leaders that you would protect us from uh, from misusing the leadership that we've been given. Uh, the authority that we've been given, help us to all strive to uh, honor you in the way that we lead and that we do so uh, knowing that you will hold us accountable for how we lead. For those of us who are in positions of, uh, of submission, we pray that, Lord, we would give our submission willingly in a desire to please you in all respects. And uh, Father, we are so grateful for, uh, for your word And we pray that uh, as we sing songs in response, that you would be glorified. It's your son's name we pray.